kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Um, Truly, thanks be to God for this word. There's a reason we do this every Sunday. Uh, Why we stand when we read the word why we say those words, thanks be to God. This is the greatest book. It is the book we most need. It's the book that binds us together, gives us hope in unpredictable times. Friends, you need that. I need it more than ever today. We need need to sing that word. We need to hear it preached, and I need to apply it to my own heart. I don't know about you. Today, before we jump into Mark chapter 4, I do want to celebrate with you the um, upcoming ordination of uh, Larry Babb and John Christensen as pastor elders, uh, lay pastor elders in our church. This is a really big deal. No kidding, I've been praying for this for two and a half years since you first invited me to come as your pastor, and we've, been, we've made this move in many ways in obedience to God's word because we see it as a model he has intended. That we see that what we need is we need shepherds leading us, protecting us, feeding us in the way that Christ would, in a way that one person is not meant to bear the sole weight for. And so I am so grateful um, to the members of this church that you would obey the scriptures by affirming these men as your pastor elders. uh, It doesn't surprise me that Larry Babb and John were and John Christensen were affirmed by you. Um, uh, they have been shepherds to me. They've been teachers far longer than I have been here, just to be honest. Um, they, uh, they've been here for, um, both of them, about 25 years. Um, and so I was seven years old when they started attending Bayless. Um, and so you're doing the math right there. But the, uh, and so they, they nonetheless have been so faithful to you, and I'm very, very grateful for them. And it's just, they don't deserve any of the credit for it. This isn't a popularity contest. God has been kind to our church to do what he promised to provide shepherds. And so we can, pr- we can praise him for it. I'm confident this is not only going to lead to greater care and leadership, it's going to help us run in the mission that we have been entrusted, which is what? To make disciples of all nations. That's what we exist for. That's our church's purpose. And these shepherds, they exist to help unleash you for that cause, even as they're obedient in it as well. So, Mark chapter 4, shall we? If you would, turn in your Bibles, take that, gift as, uh, take that Bible as a gift if you do not have one, and we're going to get right to it. Uh, we're going to see today what, J- what Jesus has to say particularly to, uh, to, to a question many of us are concerned about, change. Specifically, do you think that people really change? Is it possible for you to change, let alone the world around you? As a society, I think we're asking these questions more than ever. We tend to do this every time an election comes around. What does the future hold for us? It's hard for many, including Christians, not to be jaded a little bit. 
to not feel conflicted about the two choices, and not just two choices, but two main choices that were even given this election. If you're not feeling uh, conflicted about this, perhaps you haven't been evaluating our choices honestly. You know, let alone the fact that we have the same promises. I mean, what promises are being made this time that weren't made four years ago, that weren't made 16 years ago or longer than that? We are hoping, all of us, that our lives, our world, can actually be substantially different. But still, do you ever wonder if things were, will really ever change? Today we're going to look at two parables from Jesus, two short, packed-filled stories that are packed with some, of the, uh, some huge ideas and implications, two short, simple stories, which I think you're going to find not only pull back the curtain on our times, they pull the curtain back on what God is up to in our very lives. So you ready to look there with me? Okay, so we're going to be starting with, so excuse me while I, I turned too fast, am I, am I here we go. The, uh, we're going to be looking at three things, our passage in three things, uh, three parts, the imperceptible kingdom, the uh, inevitable kingdom, and number three, the incredible kingdom. We're going to start with the first of these, the imperceptible kingdom. Now, do you know, have you ever experienced uh, what it's like to be not overwhelmed, but underwhelmed? Anybody had an experience like this? Perhaps it was uh, something you, an experience you had built up so much over time in your mind, you've looked up to for, uh, look forward to for months, maybe years. Maybe it was getting in, uh, getting a table at a certain restaurant. Maybe it was attending a certain school, going on a certain vacation, joining a new church, maybe retirement, maybe graduation, maybe a new job or a relationship. Maybe it was getting married, something you looked forward to for maybe your whole life, or at least for a long time, and then the moment finally came, and it wasn't what you expected. Anybody ever been there? Been underwhelmed by something? Well, so Jesus, in Mark chapter 1, uh, the very beginning of our book, he, he announces publicly, verse 15, and if we could put that on the screen, the time is fulfilled... And the kingdom of God is at hand. Oh, I'm sorry. There we go. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This announcement that the kingdom is at hand, what Jesus is referring to is a coming future in which God would come through clearly and finally on his promises. It was the kind of world in which God would finally have his way. The kind of world you've been longing for your whole life, not just you, but the ancient Israelites as well, these first century Israelites. And in many ways, it se- it, through Jesus, he doesn't just announce this, it seems as if the kingdom of God is finally breaking through to the human race. It's as, as if the, the sunlight is finally broken through the clouds. Jesus' power was nothing short of miraculous. Not even uh, supernatural forces that they lived in fear of could seem to deny him, stand in his way. Nothing could resist his authority. Suddenly, hopeless circumstances were no longer hopeless. The world really was changing. But then in other ways, Jesus was not what they expected. Not really. In a sense, even he was underwhelming. 
After all, God's kingdom had been fulfilled, like Jesus said it was, why hadn't their circumstances changed? Some people were being healed by Jesus, but it was very clear that Jesus wasn't healing everyone he possibly could. Plus, the foot of the Romans, which many of them lived in terror of and frustration with, it seemed to be increasing its pressure on their neck. And yet Jesus seemed to be somewhat passive to this regime. He seemed more concerned with rebuking their Jewish leaders than rebuking their enemies. He, in fact, seemed to uh, gather around him those who would be the weakest, the ones who, again, they weren't exactly these 12, weren't that impressive. They're not exactly who you would start a revolution with. You know, you know people were ready to, uh, to announce and to uh, appoint Jesus as king, and yet shouldn't a king be more powerful? Even his disciples wondered when Jesus would finally take the gloves off. They expected the kingdom, when it came, it would come with fire, it would come with might, it would come with power. You can imagine them wondering, okay, Jesus, you announced that the kingdom is coming, so where is it? Perhaps this is why Jesus, in describing the kingdom, chooses to compare it to seeds cast on the ground. James Edwards, a commentator, biblical scholar, points out about this passage, the kingdom of God. I mean, this is the kingdom of God. It should be likened to something like majestic mountain peaks, right? Or a crimson sunset, maybe to the might of a gladiator or to the royalty and the splendor of an emperor. But compared to seeds, I mean, have you ever looked at a seed? It's wrinkled, it's small. By all appearances, it would seem to be dead. You put a seed on a shelf, and for years after years, you're going to see nothing from it, right? A seed. Now, we'll look at the rest of the parable in a second, but even here, it's as if Jesus is preparing his audience for the fact that the kingdom of God won't be what they expect. It won't be what they expect. In fact, when that kingdom begins to break in on their world, it will at least, at the front end, be imperceptible. Think about it. Even the coming of Jesus, which we're about to celebrate when Christmas comes around the bend, and if you start celebrating Christmas before Thanksgiving, this is a discipleship issue. You and I should talk about this afterwards. But nonetheless, when we get ready to celebrate Christmas... What are we celebrating? That the king of this kingdom, in many ways, entered the world in, an, in, in something that was ordinary and weak. How did he choose to enter the world? He didn't choose to uh, come through, uh, through the clouds with angels of fire and lightning bolts behind him, robed in all splendor. Instead, he came swaddled as an infant babe. He came swaddled as someone who would need to be changed, who would need to be burped and comforted someone who was dependent upon his mother's milk, a baby, and born to parents who were the poorest of the poor, who had no connections and uh, to, to even find a place to stay at night, who, who were forced to give, give birth to this baby in a place where you keep animals. I mean, it's a good thing, at least, that Jesus was uh, welcomed and he was celebrated by smelly shepherds, Right? And then Jesus, growing up, grows up in a place called Nazareth, the bad side of town that you don't want to grow up in on. In fact, later on, when he goes back to Nazareth to see his, those he grew up with, you know what they say about him? Is, wait a second, isn't this, just, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Joseph's kid? 
But then let's think about Jesus' death, not to get too, hard, uh, too far ahead of our story, that Jesus was uh, so the one who was supposed to bring the kingdom of God, the king of not only the Jews, but of the entire world. He would die on a cross, strung up and spat on, taking his final breaths on an instrument of torture, which the Romans intended to crucify enemies of the state, common criminals on. This is how Jesus died. Isaiah 53 prophesied something similar about God's rescuer that would come. 700 years before Jesus would show up, here's how he said we would notice this rescuer, this servant. Here's what we should expect of him. Verse 2, he grew up before God like like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The kingdom, like its king, won't show up like we expect. In many ways, it will be imperceptible. If we were not told where to look for it, and what to look for, if we were not give, uh, given eyes even, in fact, to see it, we would miss it entirely, entirely. Let me tell you why this matters for us practically. One of the ways that you can know that the clear gospel is being preached, the news of God's kingdom, is some will hear it and respond. I mean, that's it. I expected something more than that. Many will find the gospel itself underwhelming. In fact, I have found many religious people, many many religious people try to move past the gospel. They try to add to it. They try to take something from it or try to replace it entirely. They aren't impressed by the gospel and, and they fear others aren't really impressed by it either. So they try and dress it up by making things louder and faster and funnier, by lowering the bar of expectation, by giving plenty of other reasons for people to stick around, even if Jesus isn't that impressive to them. But friends, the gospel doesn't need our help. And praise God, it doesn't. The good news for bad people like you and me through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, in many ways, the the power of that very message depends upon its simplicity. It doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be explained. Of course it does. It doesn't mean that there aren't real questions and doubts which need to be addressed. Of course they do. Or that this unchanging message doesn't, it gets applied to to, to everyone in the same way. No, it doesn't. But what we need is not for the gospel to be dressed up or hidden backstage. What we need is not entertainment and impressive personalities or signs of miraculous power. We need the undiluted gospel. To update it or apologize for it is to lose it entirely. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul clearly wrestled through it. One of the first preachers of this gospel, the greatest missionary to ever have existed, as many dismissed him and dismissed the gospel, along with other early Christians, as something weak and as something foolish, only Paul, he leaned into that very fact. He leaned into that very effect. He, he seemed extraordinarily pleased with how unimpressive this message and its messengers were. Why? Because his Bible, which he was very familiar with, uh, he knew that that God that it preached, that it 
put forward, that it pictured, is a God who so often uses what is weak and foolish to show off his strength and wisdom. That God so often uses what we do not expect, what seems to be hidden, to show off his undiluted glory. And when he does, only he gets glory for it. Paul tells in 1 Corinthians 2, because he's so captivated and convinced that this is the case, that this impacted how he presented himself as an apostle, how he preached the gospel, how he conducted himself in a day in which everybody was trying to impress, trying to knock your socks off, trying to get your attention, win some ears. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, in in verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now, he's not being down on himself here. Like, you might think that he is, like, that... He, again, I didn't come proclaiming in a lofty speech and wisdom for me. No, he seems to be saying that with a smile on his face. Verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 5, So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What does he say is at stake if we rest our confidence upon lofty wisdom, upon great arguments, upon funny stories? What what happens when our confidence goes to any of these things? The, The gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ is diminished. We want Christ and him crucified to be the message we are most passionate about. The ones that if anybody is going to catch anything from us, even if we ourselves are very forgettable, That is the one message we do not want to compromise or have anyone else forget forget about. I have to tell you, friends, people do not care about what you assume, nor will they replicate it. They care about what you are passionate about. Is it this? Is it this? Let me ask you again. Are you impressed with that gospel message? Is that message what you come to hear over and over and over again in our church Praying that your heart might wake up to the power that is found in that small seed. Or are you waiting for us to move on from the gospel? To get something more uh, grown up? Waiting for God to impress you or entertain you with something else? Or have you resolved, if you know anything, if you make anything known, it will be Jesus Christ and him crucified? But of course, this is not all that Jesus has to say about the kingdom, is it? Number two, the inevitable kingdom. Now, I want us to look back at the parable. Of course, this seed doesn't get simply scattered on the ground, does it? No, rather mysteriously, what seems to be wrinkled and hard and somewhat lifeless, seems to be ugly even, in fact, suddenly it sprouts. Our kids, uh, we've been growing uh, some herbs on our windowsill. Um, and I'm surprised we've made it grow. Grace is on this kick of, uh, with all these plants in our house, and she's doing awesome with it. Um, we have, like, we're, we're surrounded by plants in our house, and we've got these, uh, these, uh, these herbs on one of these windowsills. And um, at first, you know, it's uh, just earth. You start watering it, and you, they say there's seeds already in the soil, and, but nothing happens for a few days. But then as soon as the parable describes, the first green blades pierce through the dark earth, And every day since, they have continued to to grow until we see cilantro and chives and basil right there. Now say, my daughter, she asks, uh, okay, dad, so how how does that happen? How does a seed which is doing nothing before all of a sudden start to do something? I've taken biology in college, but still, I, I think I would end up saying, 
I don't know. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure I know, sweetheart, other than I know that it does. Verse 28, the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Verse 29, but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. What does this have to do with the kingdom? First, uh, I think it has two things, and it's going to be a two-part statement. Let's start with the first. Fruit is growing. Fruit is growing. Now, do you, did you have a growth chart in your house? Anybody have like a growth chart? like a ruler that you would mark yourself on. Yeah, so I had one growing up. Um, as a kid, you were just so eager to grow up. Many of you kids are as well, including mine. Our kids wonder, why, right, wonder right now, and they ask me, you know, how, how tall will I be? Will I be as medium as daddy or as tall as our uncles, right? So they wonder what their future holds. And growing up, I remember standing up to that, at that chart almost monthly and wondering, uh, you know, have I, have I grown yet? I'm drawing that pencil across my head. Did I grow last night? And then I turn back around and no progress has happened. Now, from a parent's perspective, it seems as if my kids can't grow any faster. I can't believe my daughter's maturity. All of a sudden, my, my, uh, my oldest boy, he's got these lanky arms and legs overnight. It's just as, as, as if this just happens, like I can watch them grow. But as a kid, I remember growth feeling like an eternity. And spiritually speaking, many of us, I think, can relate to that feeling. Have you ever looked yourself in the mirror and wondered, will I ever change? Will I ever grow up? We think of this, I, I, at least I do, when, when we have pretty big failures. Things didn't work out according to the plan. We see ugly patterns in us again. Maybe it's just me. There are times when I really can't see what God is up to. The same fears, the same insecurities seem to have me tangled up in knots again. I want so badly not to care what people think of me, or at least not as much as I do. I want to have the courage to make difficult, lonely decisions. I want to be able to recover faster from discouragement. I want to be an eager, attentive dad. I want to be a self-forgetful husband. And yet, many times, I just can't see it. I can't really see sometimes what God is up to in my life. Maybe, maybe I just need to hear this, but let me ask. Just because I can't see growth, does that mean that growth is not happening? No. I'll answer that question for us. No. The gospel in itself has power, like a seed. And like a seed, the gospel contains all that it needs for life and change. And once that process is set into motion, it will not be stopped. Growth will take place, and it won't, and even though it may falter for a season, even though the roots of it may be hidden from us, nonetheless, fruit is growing. And it is growing, and this is the second part of our statement, apart from me. Fruit is growing apart from me. Isn't that the point of this parable? Now, just a few parables ago, oh, uh, Jesus honed in on the famous uh, parable of the, uh, the, the seeds or the, uh, the sower who's casting on different types of so soil. And the point there is all that can fight against Christian growth. That many who hear the gospel, not everybody hears it in the same way, not the same results come in their life. The seed of the gospel first can bounce off a hardened heart, Entirely, which is unreceptive to the message, snatched up by spiritual forces that want to keep that heart in ignorance. 
Or that seed of the gospel can be withered in a shallow heart where it's unable to root itself deeply enough to endure the suffering that all of us are going to end up facing someday. Or the seed of the gospel can be choked out in a crowded heart where the thorns of our desires and our ambitions choke out our affection for Jesus. All of that is abundantly true. Those are the risks and the stakes. Those are the things that fight against Christian growth. The gospel needs to land in the right soil. It needs to land in the right kind of heart, a heart of faith, which God only can provide. This is the only heart that God, that this kind of heart is not something we can work ourselves into. It's the one that God has to provide. But let me ask, even when it lands in that fruitful soil, in that healthy soil, when it lands in the right soil, does life come from that soil? No, it comes from the seed that lands in it. Even the farmer cannot control or speed along the plant's progress. He can pick out stones and he can pick out weeds from the soil, but the plant produces life itself. Friend, none of us have an excuse for apathy. After all, Jesus said that obedience to him would be like taking up your cross and dying to yourself. We will need to, as the Bible will put it, work out the implications of our salvation. Not work for, but work out the implications of our salvation with fear and with trembling. That's a lot of hard work. Like a farmer plucking stones and weeds from the soil, we need to remove any obstacles to growth that we can. And that whether that be a certain relationship that stands in the way of that growth, whether it be Netflix, maybe it's our phones, Maybe those, I mean, if you're like me, that's a huge distraction. Whatever it takes, whatever stands in the way of those growths, that growth, when maybe it's addiction itself, it needs to be removed by any means necessary. But again, the farmer does not produce life. The soil does not produce life. The plant produces life. And if your eyes are on Jesus, your rescuer. If your knees are bent before Jesus, your Lord, I have news for you. Growth is happening whether you recognize it or not. The same power, after all, that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in you. Do you believe that, friends? Even as you stumble and fall, that power is at work. And the thing is, you don't even need to be aware of that growth for that growth to be happening nonetheless. Did you notice verse 27? After all, I love this. Verse 27. I want to read this again. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Let me ask you, if the farmer stays up all night watching that plant, trying to keep it growing, is he going to have any effect on how fast it grows? That plant is growing even while the farmer sleeps. Isn't that awesome? That is great news. I don't know about, maybe just for me. He, the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Anyone else find that to be a comfort? I need that comfort today. If the kingdom really is at hand and you have allowed the light of that kingdom, the sunlight of it to break upon your life through faith, the Holy Spirit isn't leaving you alone. He hasn't given up on you. He is moving himself in and it is only a matter of time before fruit blossoms for the harvest. That means that Christians, more than anyone, should maintain real hope that change is indeed possible. In many ways, we should be the last people to give up on people. Christians should be the last people to write people off, even when we don't see it. God may yet still be at work. 
where the gospel is being sown, we should be watching and expecting for the life to pierce the surface, for fruit to be maturing. Let me ask you, Christian, if you are a Christian. Again, if you're not, I'm so glad that you are here, but let me address the Christians for a second. Are you looking for it right now? Are you looking for that life, especially in the lives of fellow believers? Ask someone you trust today to answer a few questions for you, whether it's on the, at lunch or in the car ride home. or Ask somebody who won't flatter you or dismiss you have you seen God at work in my life in the last year? Do you see fruit being born? Just like a parent is the best observer of a child's growth, sometimes we need somebody outside of ourselves to chime in, don't we? And if you see God at work, more importantly, in another's life, friend, call it out. That is your job. One of the best and most glorious acts of obedience you can do is to bring encouragement to someone who needs it. To give God the glory he deserves by saying, I see him at work in you. Friends, we shouldn't keep that a secret. Someone might need to hear that assurance that God, his promises can be trusted. That he actually is finishing the work that he started in you Friends, I long for our church to be full of relentless encouragers. I long for our church to be full of friendships, full of marriages, full of families, where we are quick, eager, and generous with our encouragement. Quick to say, I see him at work in you. Now, you don't deserve any of the credit for it. I praise God for it, but nonetheless, I see him at work. He hasn't given up on you. The evidence of the gospel is there. I long for us to be having those kind of conversations over and over and over again. One, that makes the harder conversations much easier if we're in an environment of encouragement. But you want to see growth begin to happen and faster, begin to give God public glory for it. Yet I fear our eyes, and this is perhaps just speaking to me again, our eyes are so focused on ourselves that we cannot see God's work in our lives, let alone in the lives of others. We are so trapped in self-pity or too afraid that a simple encouragement might go to someone else's head. Sometimes we want to punish a person by withholding encouragement that we rob God of the glory he deserves. Who today needs to hear again reminders of God's goodness and work from you? Why Why do you praise God for them? Who needs to hear it? Who could use some wind in their sails? After all, if growth really is taking place, I can't take credit for it. They can't take credit for it. I'm just the soil. I'm just the farmer. Nonetheless, call it out today. Perhaps the, that is the one action you can take from this sermon, is to find someone, anyone who needs wind in their sails, needs encouragement, needs to know God's promises are real and can be trusted by to say, I see it at work in you. And I'm so grateful for how pastor and author Ray Ortland has put this. The thing everyone needs, absolutely everyone needs, is the gospel plus safety plus time. The gospel plus safety plus time. I believe I put this later in my slides. I apologize. Gospel plus safety plus time. Let me tell you what I mean. We need multiple exposures to the gospel. Constant immersion in it. Wave upon wave of grace and truth lapping over our lives. We need to receive it in a culture, then, of safety. 
of respect and sympathy, of listening and understanding, a culture that welcomes that what is in darkness to come into the light, a culture where people can open up and unburden their souls without fear. And number three, we need time without pressures or demands of growth. Even as change is urgent, friends, no one changes quickly. And God is patient with complicated people. Gospel plus safety plus time. It's a formula for growth, and it's what all of us need. The imperceptible kingdom, the inevitable kingdom, and number three, the incredible kingdom. In the second parable of our passage, Jesus uses another illustration, this time of a mustard seed, one of the smallest seeds that a, a farmer would use, uh, really, really tiny, um, which produced one of the largest garden plants in the Near East, often growing from this small seed, I can't even show you, uh, up to 12 feet in diameter, uh, becoming a perfect shelter for birds and for animals from the uh, blinding and oppressive, intense Near Eastern sun. And the thing is, is if you looked at a mustard seed without some knowledge about it, you could never have predicted the results that would come. What this in- captures for us is the tension Christians face this side of the cross. You see, in some way, in many ways, the kingdom is already here. Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. In Matthew 28, 18, he announces, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The war, in many ways, is over. And yeah, to look around you and we can see that it isn't yet. Just as Jesus, Jesus is the king, but not all submit to that king, not all recognize him as king, not, he has not yet fully gotten his way in the world. And some of the fiercest fights are yet to be had in many ways. In fact, I think I can, it can seem like Christians or the kingdom of God is losing a fight around the world regardless of how you feel about religious dynamics in the United States, I can't tell you what the next few years hold for any Christian or for the church, let alone for the, what the months hold, but I know what assurance this passage gives us, and it's the same assurance that has animated believers in North Korea, in Afghanistan, in Somalia, and Nepal, some of the most dangerous places to be a Christian right now. His kingdom is here, and it is coming in full. As D.A. Carson puts it, there is no doubt who will be seen to be king on the last day. Friends, in the midst of my cares, trouble, despair, and woes, even in a pandemic and an upcoming election that is bound to get ugly, his seeds are ripening. His design and his plans are being carried out, pressing towards one conclusion, the coming of Christ to harvest a great harvest of the nations. The question is, is, What will we do before that harvest comes? Even as this kingdom is coming, we are called to join it now. Every single one of us. If you are not a Christian, I want to plead with you. Will you bow the knee now to King Jesus? See the goodness in his kingdom, that kind of world that you could not create for yourself being gifted to you to be a part of simply by faith in him. We bow in adoration and in reverence to Jesus to come under the shelter of his shadow in repentance and faith, or will you wait to bow the knee later and to be burnt up as an enemy? 
It really is that intense, and the stakes are very serious. That kingdom is real, and it is present, and we belong to it either now or we deny it now. Let me say to those who are Christians, what is our role then between the already and the not yet kingdom? Well, it's to wait. To do just that, to wait. Now, let me be very clear here. Waiting isn't passive, and it certainly doesn't mean removal from our surrounding culture. In fact, and many, I fear many religious people try to do this, to try to just bunker down till glory by and by. The, the thing is, is that waiting isn't passive. In fact, it may mean that we are more active in our relationships, more active in our city um, as a part of it than ever before, pleading, as we talked about last week, for more to align themselves with King Jesus, sharing the gospel boldly and widely, casting it like seed, wondering where it might gain root and bear fruit. But still, we are waiting for King Jesus, and his kingdom does not come by revolution. It does not come by religious reform. It does not come through patriotism, and certainly not by predicting the times. His kingdom comes by the power of the gospel. And of all the things that we hope for, work for, that we hold on with two hands, it is the gospel and must be the gospel to the end. His glory not a political victory, is our why. It is the reason we exist. And only when we want his glory more than we want anything else, we, more than we, only when we want it more than we want anything else, can we act and pray and press on, let alone love those who disagree with us, which I think many of us could do better at today, regardless of what comes, because ultimately we know what is coming. Friends, can I I say to you, we need to chill out. We need to be patient. We need to wait upon the Lord. But even more so, let's be patient with one another. Let's be patient with ourselves, too. God is. Give yourself the gospel. Give others the gospel, especially when things don't turn out as you planned or hoped for especially when you are not progressing as you thought you might or others are not changing as you think that they should. Be patient in prayer, bold with the gospel, and watch for the fruit of the kingdom. Wait upon the Lord. The growth belongs to God, and he finishes what he starts. Let me say that again. The growth belongs to God, and he finishes what he starts. His kingdom may be imperceptible, It is inevitable, and it will be incredible. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time, albeit brief in your word, and hearing a bit more about this kingdom that you will bring. These high high, uh, promises are not pipe dreams. You will bring them to their conclusion. We have the evidence that we could all the evidence that we could ever hope for in what you've accomplished through your death upon the cross and through your resurrection from the grave. Come even now, King Jesus. We need you. And as we wait, we would be full of joy and expectation, the chief encouragers in another person's life, offering hope to those who are hopeless, tempering the expectations, who think we are going to be our own salvation. Lord, would we draw attention and grab on with two hands the 
cross of Jesus Christ, resolving to know that if we know anything. And would your gospel bear fruit among us? The same power that saved us, would it unite us and use us for Jesus' glory at the time of great harvest? It's for his sake we pray. Amen.